In the year 2000, George W. Bush became the first president in more than 100 years to win the presidency and lose the popular vote. In 2016, Donald Trump became the second. Now, what made both of those victories even possible at the expense of the popular vote was the Electoral College. But in 2000, it wasn't just the Electoral College. It was also the Supreme Court. The 2000 election came down to the state of Florida. The margin between Al Gore and George Bush was 537 votes, a number that remains staggering to this day. And even though Al Gore had won the popular vote by half a million votes, whether those 53700 votes in Florida did or did not get counted would decide the race. And after a flurry of legal challenges and appeals, that decision ended up in the hands of the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court hasn't been asked to decide the election, but their decision just might do just that. And here comes our runner, uh, here comes our runner, Matt Hoffman. Reverse. The decision's been reversed. The U.S. Supreme Court has reversed the decision of the Florida Supreme Court. Here Show we go. Show me where to go. Several of the justices take the time to write separately. Uh, there's a dissent from Justice Breyer. There's a separate dissent from Justice Ginsburg. There's a separate dissent from Justice Souter. Uh, so it would appear that the 5-4 vote that we have seen all along is holding. It, it does appear, as I look through here, to be a 5-4 opinion. The entire reason we as a country ended up electing George W. Bush in the very first place was a 5-4 vote by the Supreme Court, a vote along ideological lines, with five conservative justices ruling in a way that handed Bush the White House and four liberal justices dissenting. And now today, uh, an even more conservative Supreme Court could again effectively decide the 2024 election. There are two issues headed imminently towards the court, ones that could set the playing field for the 2024 election. Number one is how the court responds to yesterday's ruling from the Colorado State Supreme Court, the one saying that Donald Trump should be taken off the ballot in that state because of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. This one is particularly tricky. Section 3 of that amendment says that no person shall hold any office, civil or military, under the United States who, having previously taken an oath as an officer of the United States to support the Constitution of the United States, shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. Now, I say this one is tricky because very few people have committed insurrection against the United States, and even fewer of those people tried to run for office after doing so. So there is no real analog here as far as precedent. So where does that put Donald Trump? Multiple lower courts have already ruled that Trump himself did personally engage in insurrection. But a core question at issue here is for whom this insurrection clause was really intended. Which offices count? Which officers count? Was it intended for presidents? and presidential candidates, or are they somehow exempted? Now, the Colorado Supreme Court, state Supreme Court, goes a long way towards resolving what the authors of this amendment were thinking about when they wrote this, whether they specifically intended this amendment, this Section 3 of this amendment, as a guardrail against presidents and potential presidents who engaged in insurrection. The state Supreme Court did some very, very deep research to make the case that, yes, this sure does apply to presidents and presidential candidates. 
And to that end, among the best and deepest cuts cited in this ruling is this one. It is a conversation between two senators in the year 1866 as they were literally writing the 14th Amendment. Senator Reverdy Johnson worried that the final version of Section 3 did not include the office of the presidency. He stated, this amendment does not go far enough because past rebels may be elected president or vice president of the United States. So he asked, why did you omit to exclude them? I do not understand them to be excluded from the privilege of holding the two highest offices in the gift of the nation. Senator Lott Morrill fielded this objection. He replied, let me call the senator's attention to the words or hold any office, civil or military, under the United States. This answer satisfied Senator Johnson, who stated, hmm, perhaps I am wrong as to the exclusion from the presidency. No doubt I am. The senators who literally wrote the 14th Amendment specifically meant for it to apply to the presidency. It does not get any more originalist than that, my friends. And that is exactly the point here. Adam Serwer argues in The Atlantic today that this ruling from the Colorado State Supreme Court is going to put the court's conservatives between a rock and a hard place. The court's conservative justices often justify their decisions through the legal philosophy of originalism or trying to interpret what the founders meant when they wrote the Constitution. Sower writes that this Colorado Supreme Court ruling is calling the bluff of the U.S. Supreme Court's originalists, forcing its conservative justices to choose between their purported legal philosophy and the partisan interests of the party with which they identify. So it would seem. Now, Trump has until January 4th to appeal the Colorado State Supreme Court decision, and his campaign says it plans to. And when that happens, it will put the issue on hold until the Supreme Court makes its decision, meaning Trump will likely be on the Colorado Republican primary ballot. But whether he appears on the general election ballot in Colorado and potential potentially in any other states that could follow Colorado's lead, all of that will rest once again in the hands of the Supreme Court. That is not the only big call they have to make and soon. Today, Trump's lawyers filed their response to the special counsel's motion, asking the Supreme Court to immediately take up Trump's question of presidential immunity. Trump's lawyers have been trying to argue that the entire federal election interference case should be thrown out because Trump is protected by presidential immunity. The special counsel asked the court to take up the issue immediately to prevent the appeals process from delaying a trial that is currently scheduled for March 4th. In today's filing, Trump's lawyers urged the justices not to rush to decide. The Supreme Court is likely to decide in short order whether to take that case or to punt it back to the appeals court. And that decision could either keep the trial date on track or delay it, potentially past the 2024 election. In both the 14th Amendment case and this presidential immunity case, the Supreme Court yet again finds itself in a position that could make or break this election for Donald Trump. Joining me now are George Conway, contributor to The Atlantic Magazine, and Mark Joseph Stern, senior writer covering the courts and the law for Slate Magazine. Thank you both for joining me. Um, George, I really think Adam Serwer is on to something in the way that this 
uh, state Supreme Court ruling is going to test the bounds of originalism uh, that Clarence Thomas and Sam Alito and Justice Roberts, all the conservatives on the bench say they are beholden to. What do you make of it? Yeah, I don't think there's any way you can construe um, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment to exclude the presidency. And in fact, the dissents in last night's opinion did not bother with that argument, which was very, very transparent and very, very weak on the part of the district court, which otherwise found Trump to be an insurrectionist. I mean, the fact of the matter is you don't even have to go into the congressional record to discern the congressional intent here. You need only look at the language. And the fact of the matter is when you when it comes to originalism and textualism of the sort that uh, Scalia has taught us all, uh, it's the, the, you, if the language is clear, you don't have to go any farther. And the fact of the matter is the reference to officer of the United States clearly includes the president because the Constitution elsewhere refers to the office of the presidency. So it would be precious. It would be totally bizarre to hold, as the district court in Colorado did, that an officer of the United States does, you know, is someone who an, a, a, a person who holds an office of the United States is not an officer of the United States. It just makes no sense. And you don't even have to look at the legislative history in, in Congress. Yeah, I, you don't have to. But then you wouldn't be able to talk about Senators Reverdy Johnson and Lot Morrill well, in the year 1866, <laughs> Mark. I mean, George makes the point that the Constitution cites the office of the presidency in, I think it's 25 times uh, in the ruling they mention. But this anecdote between these two senators, as they're literally drafting the amendment, maybe it's gilding the lily, I don't know. It seems like they truly understand their audience here, which is a Supreme Court group of conservatives who are obsessed with the writings, talkings and theorizings and legislating of dead white men, largely in the 18th and 19th century. Yeah, absolutely. And I think because this is a case of first impression, there might be some temptation to dismiss the Colorado Supreme Court's decision as absurd or overreach. But once you drill down into the analysis, as you have already, it's really difficult to find fault with the reasoning. And that reasoning is, in fact, rooted in constitutional text and history to a truly extraordinary degree. I think you're spot on that this majority, despite being quite liberal, was aiming its decision at the Supreme Court's conservatives, almost lobbying the conservatives to say, hey, look, you guys say that you're textualists. You guys say you're originalists. Well, we have spent more than 100 pages now walking you through exactly why the original meaning of the 14th Amendment disqualifies Trump from the ballot. And if everything you say is true, that you only look at text, you only look at the original public understanding of a constitutional section, then this is an easy case. All you have to do is apply that original meaning and Trump must be knocked off the ballot, really not just in Colorado, but in every state. Uh, I think the best arguments to the contrary uh, is that such a decision knocking Trump off the ballot could be quite destabilizing to the 2024 election. And frankly, I agree. I, I'm quite concerned myself about the uh, implications and consequences of knocking Trump off the ballot in Colorado or anywhere else. But that's not a constitutional argument. That 
that is a policy argument. And the Roberts Court has told us over and over again, we do not bother with policy. If you don't like what the Constitution says, you should change it. Our only job here is to interpret and apply the law as written. And if that's the case, then again, the court has an easy job ahead. Uh, I'm not sure that it will do what the Colorado Supreme Court suggested, but I think that it will be a tougher call for some of these originalists than a lot of spectators might assume. Well, yeah, it really makes them put their money where their mouth is, for lack of a better metaphor, George. And, you know, after in the wake of this New York Times reporting about how the political considerations that the Supreme Court made in hiding the case from the docket and otherwise making, you know, decisions that seemed very clearly political, very clearly partisan in taking up the Dobbs case, it really makes you question the very notion of their strict constitutionalism and whether or not that has long ago been trumped by partisan affiliation. I wonder how you think it all shakes out if and when the Supreme Court takes it up. I beg to differ just a little bit because there Please. is nothing in the Constitution of the United States that, that from which you could imply a right to an abortion. The only basis for um, maintaining Roe was stare decisis. And I think I would have done that because it was 50, the decision was 50 years old. But there was no textual basis, no historical basis for the right to an abortion. Nonetheless, here it's quite, quite different. The language is unmistakably clear. And as, as Mark says, and we don't agree on a lot many times, but Mark says here, that there's really no legal basis to ignore Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. And in fact, in the Supreme Court, emblazoned in the marble is a saying, an old Latin saying, and forgive my high school, inadequate high school Latin pronunciation, but it goes like, I think it's fiat justitia uh, ruat caelum, and it means let justice, let justice reign uh, though the heavens may fall. In other words, you have to let the chips fall where it may if the legal conclusion is indisputable, which I think it is here. And there was no contention by the dissent here that the, that the legal conclusion was wrong or no contention here that, uh, that, 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 um, that the uh, facts did not, were not shown by clear and convincing proof in the district court. I don't know how they get around it. And I wrote an article today in the Atlantic saying exactly that. The sense, the dissent's weakness last night showed that the majority opinion was quite correct. Yeah. And I am not going to relitigate the Dobbs decision with you because we don't have time for it, George. But well, I that, think that we could do that for a week. Yeah, We'll, we'll do that on another segment. I, I the point I'm trying to make is that th- this court is not immune from political considerations. I mean, the very way, way in which they hid the Dobbs decision on the docket suggests that they understood the political ramifications of that. But to your point, Mark, um, this court has proposed that it is not a political body, that it doesn't take political policy considerations. It's just looking at the Constitution. The, the state Supreme Court ruling goes back and quotes Neil Gorsuch in this ruling. It's specifically targeting a decision that Neil Gorsuch made a ruling he made in 2012 as an appellate court judge in Colorado, where he recognized it is a state's it is in a state's legitimate interest to protect the integrity and practical functioning of the political process that permits the state to exclude from the ballot candidates who are constitutionally prohibited from assuming office. In addition to being strict constitutionalists, these justices tend to love to send things back to the states and tend to really be proponents of states' rights. 
Right. I mean, we heard this after the 2016 election, right? When when people complained that uh, Donald Trump had lost the popular vote, the conservative response was, well, we're a, a republic, not a democracy. Really, the states are in the driver's seat when it comes to federal <coughs> elections. And that really should cut both ways for Republicans uh, in 2024, because if the states are in the driver's seat, if they're the ones making these decisions, I don't see why a state shouldn't be able to apply the 14th Amendment as written and say, you know what, there aren't very many qualifications to be president, right? You have to be 35. You have to be a natural born citizen. You can't have engaged in an insurrection. And I think it's quite reasonable, given our federalist system, uh, for a state to have the authority uh, through its Supreme Court to say, you know, we're just not going to let this guy on the ballot because he lacks one of the very few constitutional qualifications to run. I want to add one point to what George said, though. You know, I I think we should look at this through the lens of politics. Politics can be a consideration. I also think we need to consider whether these justices can or should look at outcomes of a case, right? So, you know, when the court decided a big Second Amendment decision uh, last year, uh, where the court declared that most restrictions on firearms are presumptively unconstitutional, there was a lot of uh, hue and cry on the other side that this would lead to more gun deaths, that this would imperil American citizens. And the conservative majority's response was a big shrug. You know, they basically said, that's not our problem. Our only job is to decide what this means. And the chips will fall where they may. Any kind of consideration of the results or the outcomes, that would be a kind of biased judging that has no place in our judiciary. Well, if that's true of guns and true of so many other things, corporations buying elections, uh, women having bodily autonomy, it should obviously be true of Trump's qualification to be president as well. And so I think this will be a moment of truth, not just for the originalists in terms of their principle of of how to apply the Constitution, but how they should be judges, how they should exercise the authority, the extraordinary authority that they have been given to have the final word on the law. Do they balk and chicken out and say this is just too radical for us? Or do they acknowledge that the 14th Amendment was kind of radical? It still is. And applying it as written might lead to some kind of fearful results, but that's the court's job and it's our job to respond. I'm just looking for um, giant fatheads outside of the Supreme Court with Reverdy Johnson and Lot Morrill. That's that's my contribution to this this case. George Conway, Mark Joseph Stern, please come back. We have lots more to talk to you guys about in, in the days and weeks ahead. I appreciate your time tonight. Thank you. We have a lot ahead this hour, including an Arizona judge is allowing a defamation lawsuit against Republican Carrie Lake to move forward. The latest proof that the big lie comes with big consequences. But first, Trump supporters appear to care about whether he is convicted, but not in the way that Donald Trump would like them to. We'll have more on that right after the break. MSNBC is going to be live here all night. Today's news requires more facts. Palestinians and Israelis are blaming each other for the tragedy that has inflamed the region. More analysis. Most of the states with the worst rates of gun deaths are ones where Republicans control the state government. And more perspective. This is not just about women and pregnant people in Texas. This is about people across this country. The world's never been harder to understand. That's why it's never been more important to try. MSNBC. Understand more. 
When news breaks, go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows and hosts, and the latest updates on the 2024 election. Go beyond the what to understand the why. Download the app now at msnbc.com slash app. I mean, look, if somebody's convicted or something of some of these things, there was no trial on any of this. They basically just said, what, you can't be on the ballot? I mean, how does that work? We don't need to have judges making these decisions. We need voters to have make these decisions. I do not believe Donald Trump should be prevented from being president of the United States by any court. I think he should be prevented from being president of the United States by the voters of this country. Donald Trump's opponents say they want voters and not the courts to decide his fate on the ballot. And new polling from The New York Times suggests that a sizable minority of Republican voters are only willing to support Trump for now, while he can still say he hasn't been found guilty of a crime. Nearly a quarter of Trump's Republican supporters say he should not be the party's nominee if he is convicted. Another 20 percent say that Trump should go to prison if he's convicted. And 23 percent say they believe the former president committed serious federal crimes, twice as many as in July. Joining me now is Ruth Yelnick, staff editor for news surveys at The New York Times. Ms. Yelnick, thank you for joining me. Um, I'm very curious about these numbers here. The share of Republicans and Republican-leaning independents who believe that Donald Trump committed a crime has increased to 27 percent from 17 percent. As well, 23 percent of support Trump supporters, they believe he has committed serious federal crimes, which is up from 11 percent in July. What do you think is driving that bump? And I'm going to I'm going to pretend that we haven't been talking about it ad nauseum because just to hear what the pros have to say. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's really kind of a remarkable increase to see that number jump about 10 percent from July. We've been tracking this for over a year, and the number was hovering right around 6 or 7 percent, and now it's it's quite high. At the same time, these are people who are Trump supporters, and they intend to be Trump supporters. So, you know, they think he's committed serious federal crimes, but they're not particularly concerned about the fact that he's committed serious federal crimes. It's more just kind of a fact to them. Do you have a, do you have a sense of the timeline in which that number has increased? Has it been recently or was it sort of steady throughout the summer when there were indictments and there was, you know, Trump at courthouses in front of courthouse steps, etc.? It's hard to know, but there's a a lot of reason to believe it was more recent and not steadily over the summer. We did a survey of battleground states, not of a a national survey, and so it's hard to compare, but we did see a slight increase around then. So it's likely a more recent increase. Huh. Now, as to whether or not they believe he should actually still be president or be the candidate, the numbers there are interesting. 24 percent, a quarter of Trump supporters, say they believe he should not be the party's nominee if convicted. The caveat to that is that he will, if he is convicted, that is unlikely to happen before he is the potential nominee. But I do wonder if you got a sense of how how firm that commitment was and whether there is any sense that these this quarter of Trump supporters is even aware of the alternatives, not necessarily in the Republican Party, because this would potentially happen after Trump was made nominee, but as a third party candidates or even, dare I ask, President Biden. 
Yeah. So it's really interesting, actually, that number one quarter is of Trump general election supporters. When you look at Trump primary supporters, it's closer to 15 percent. And so a practice that's really only about 4 percent of primary voters that could swing in one direction or another, not really enough to change the trajectory of the primary where Trump is up by 50-plus points against his closest opponent. But even then, there's a lot of reason to believe that those switchers are not that solid on it. I think they're waiting to see what happens. We heard that from our respondents again and again, that, you know, if he's convicted, they might change their minds, but they're also waiting to see what happens. And I think it also depends on which case he's convicted in. Well, yeah. And what's interesting to me is given how in other cases we're told that Trump's support sort of calcifies in and around as the stakes get higher, they stand stronger with their man, for lack of a better phrase. And what these numbers suggest is that they are open to seeing what happens to potentially changing their support for Donald Trump and that that a fifth of them believe that he should go to prison if he's convicted in the January 6th case. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that prison number is particularly interesting. And one thing that wasn't in this survey, but was in a previous survey we conducted of six battleground states last month, is we asked people in the battleground states where it really matters for the general election if he was convicted and sentenced to prison, if they might switch their vote to Biden. And we saw about 6 percent of people saying that they were open to doing that, which in battleground states, that's enough to make a difference in the election next fall. With the, with, we know it's going to be a tight one. So all of these sort of what look like margin calls really matter. Ruth Igielnik from The New York Times, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. Still to come this evening, Trump campaigns on anti-immigrant fear-mongering while the state of Texas offers us a glimpse of what his second term might look like. An election denier Carrie Lake loses her bid to get out of a lawsuit filed by an elections official. What this means for other perpetrators of the big lie. Coming up next. Hey everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow. It's Monday, everyone. Happy to have you here on this Monday night. Lots of news to get to tonight. Make more of your Mondays on MSNBC with Jen Psaki and Rachel Maddow back to back. If you were talking to a voter, what would you say to them about why this case matters to them? Was this the kind of proceeding you would expect in a typical New York DA's case, or does this really feel different? Inside with Jen Psaki at 8 p.m. Eastern, followed by The Rachel Maddow Show at 9, Mondays on MSNBC. Monday night. Here's a question. Is this defamation or freedom of speech? These two guys, they don't, they don't like voters or candidates who question the rigged elections that they run. The incredible lengths that these two bozos went 
to trample and steal our vote, rig our election, and then swear in a bunch of frauds who are destroying Arizona. Richard and Gates intentionally printed the wrong image on the ballot on election day so that those ballots would intentionally be spit out of the tabulators. That was election-denying MAGA Republican Carrie Lake earlier this year at a rally where she lied about the rigged 2022 Arizona gubernatorial election that she lost. Lake name-checked and showed pictures of these two men repeatedly, Maricopa County election officials Bill Gates and Stephen Richer. Now, both men are Republicans. Carrie Lake made incredibly specific and baseless claims about how the two men conspired against her and her campaign to mess with ballots and rig the election. One of those officials, Stephen Richer, says that Lake's lies have hurt his professional life and harmed his reputation. He says that the Maricopa County Sheriff's Office has had to do regular patrols of his home and his workplace because of how many threats, including death threats, he has received. And so earlier this summer, Stephen Richer sued Carrie Lake for defamation, claiming that her lies about him crossed a line. In court, lawyers for Carrie Lake tried to argue that all of her bogus claims about Richer should be protected, that they are free speech. They argued that Lake's claims were just, quote, rhetorical hyperbole, and they asked the judge to throw out the defamation case in its entirety. Well, today, a judge ruled on that and flatly denied Carrie Lake's request to throw out the defamation claims against her. The judge ruled that if Lake's statements about Stephen Richer are proven to be false or defamatory, they do not deserve the protection of the First Amendment. Now, Carrie Lake is not just a Republican candidate for Senate in Arizona, or governor for that matter. Her name has been floated on Donald Trump's short list of candidates for vice president. In fact, Donald Trump is already test driving the Carrie Lake defense, claiming that all of his election lies were just free speech, too. And so this case has significant implications for what we, as a country, allow election deniers to get away with. Georgia election workers Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss just won a $148 million judgment in their defamation case against Rudy Giuliani over his 2020 election lies. But whether we will get to see the architect of the big lie held accountable is very much still an open question. Much more ahead tonight, including the unusual calm inside the Biden campaign as everything and everyone else, everywhere else, goes insane. But first, Donald Trump is relentlessly attacking migrants on the campaign trail, and Texas is listening. We'll talk to Julian Castro about that next. Let's get right to the drone images right now. Our Fox News aerial team live over Eagle Pass, where they have been getting absolutely buried in illegal crossings today. We are talking thousands of people who have crossed over illegally. They continue coming in from all over the world. Large amounts of adults coming in from Africa. This week, Fox News zeroed in on the uptick of southern border crossings, taking special note of Monday's record-breaking 12,000 apprehensions at the border. That record and this migration trend have become ammunition for some of the most extreme, hardline immigration policies and rhetoric to date. Donald Trump has repeatedly spoken on the campaign trail about his plans to expel immigrants en masse, promising to be a dictator and close the border on day one and defending his stance on what he calls blood purity. And Trump did it again last night 
before a crowd of more than a thousand supporters. They come from Africa. They come from Asia. They come from South America, but not just South America. They're all over the world. They dump them on the border and they pour into our country. It's crazy what's going on. They're ruining our country. And it's true. They're destroying the blood of our country. They're destroying the fabric of our country. And we're going to have to get them out. We're going to have to get mass numbers of these, especially the criminals. They're coming from jails, prisons. They're coming from mental institutions. Texas is already giving some of Trump's immigration plans a test run. This week, Texas Governor Greg Abbott signed into law legislation that makes crossing the border illegally a state crime and allows local law enforcement to arrest undocumented immigrants. Meanwhile, in D.C., Congress is reportedly in talks with the Biden administration as they consider legislation that could upend the country's asylum system altogether. Joining me now is Julian Castro, former Housing and Urban Development Secretary and current MSNBC political analyst. Julian, thank you for being here tonight. I just first, hearing Trump's words on the campaign trail, which could have just as easily come out of the mouth of Adolf Hitler, which he's not that shy about, by the way, um, the, the, the sort of parallels. The reality is, as distasteful and abhorrent as you and I may feel they are, I think there's new polling out from Marquette that says more people trust Donald Trump on immigration than Joe Biden. What do you make of that? Well, I think that's downright scary for our country, Alex, that you can have somebody like Donald Trump uh, who presents a real threat because he's put some of these policies into place before and is neck and neck in the polls right now with President Biden uh, saying these kinds of things based on his track record and that he has so much support still among the American people, it makes you think, uh, what's going on with us? What's going on with the American people? Not everybody by any means, but enough people that this is striking and it's very worrisome and I think dangerous if we're not careful. Um, The kind of language that he's using, we know the result of this. This foments hate. It it, uh, prompts violence like we saw in El Paso in 2019, where somebody drove from Dallas all the way to El Paso because he believed that there was a Hispanic invasion. Uh, That's the kind of thing that happens when you use this type of rhetoric. I do wonder, um, you know, the the the, the the resonance of this rhetoric, the fact that people are listening to it and buying it, does that suggest to you that some of the attempts by Republicans to dehumanize migrants, to use them as political pawns, Governor Abbott is chief among th- those folks. He just sent his first flight of migrants from El Paso to Chicago uh, with 120 migrants last night. This is something that Ron DeSantis likes to do. Are those tactics actually shifting public opinion, do you think? I think that's possible. You remember in 2012 in that debate, I think it was in January of that year, where Romney said that he was for self-deportation and everybody went crazy and said, oh, that's ridiculous. It was it was uh, outside of the norm at that point. They have stretched the so-called Overton window massively. And I have to say, Alex, part of it in me for me is a disappointment with a lot of mainstream Democrats because The reason that Overton window has gotten so stretched is because Democrats don't push back hard enough 
with a positive vision for immigration. And when I say positive vision, I don't mean that, that you don't concede that we need to address this issue, uh, but you need to be specific about how it should be addressed and then speak to the values of our country and that this is a nation of immigrants and put up that positive vision. If you don't do that, if all you do is backtrack and then perhaps we're on the cusp of uh, Senate Democrats accepting what would have been considered ridiculous extremist policies right before Trump came in, but now buying into them like the reinstatement of Title 42 and doing away with parole authority, then where does that leave the American people except to think, well, maybe this extremism is okay. That's what you get when you don't push back. Yeah. Can you talk more about that? Because right now there are these sort of closed door negotiations going on in the Senate. The Biden White House is involved in them, but it's unclear exactly what the specific terms are, only that there may be some very significant concessions to the right wing on immigration policy, on asylum policy. Um, do you think it's too late to stop that? I mean, they're be, precisely because they've been happening in secret, it's hard to know exactly what the contours of the negotiation are other than what, what is being reported out. Well, it is. I mean, there are several provisions, uh, you know, including bringing back essentially Title 42, expanding the powers of the president to expel uh, individuals, doing away with the opposite, which would be what's called parole authority, which allows the, the executive branch to allow people who might otherwise be inadmissible temporarily in uh, and, and other ways to address this. Yeah, we don't know what's going to come out of that. I have a feeling at the end of the day, because this was sort of a botched process, the Congressional Hispanic Caucus and the Progressive Caucus have pushed back hard on this because they weren't brought in early, haven't been part of crafting this. I don't think it's going to go anywhere, uh, but it might. And if it does, this is going to remake our asylum system in the image of Stephen Miller and Donald Trump. That is a terrible thing to happen. Uh, I wish that Democrats had Republicans that they could actually negotiate with on this that would allow us to invest in resources for the border and to get asylum claims adjudicated much more quickly so that if people are not going to get asylum, then they can you know, be on their way. But Republicans keep blocking that. So all around, this puts President Biden and Democrats in a real bind. But you can't sell out your values and you can't sell out the country that we are, uh, even if it means forcing Republicans to the brink on the support of our allies. Yeah. And you can't allow um, Greg Abbott and Donald Trump to establish the narrative about people who are fleeing very dire circumstances who are brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers and children, just like we were and we are. Julian Castro, thank you so much for your time and expertise tonight. When we come back, New York Magazine correspondent Gabriel Benedetti on his deep dive into the Biden campaign, why they are not scared about the president's polling numbers and what everyone else should do about it. That's just ahead. A New York Times-Siena College poll out this week shows President Biden losing to Donald Trump by two points, 46 to 44 percent in a hypothetical matchup among registered voters. But when likely voters were asked that same question, likely voters, the results flip. Biden wins by two points, 47 to Trump's 45, which is to say this far out from the 2024 election, anything goes. And that possibility is revealing what New York Magazine's Gabriel Benedetti calls a glaring cognitive split at the top of the Democratic Party. While commentators and many strategists are aghast at Biden's polling slide and desperate to see a course correction, 
The president's aides at the White House and at re-election the HQ give every indication that they consider the election very much under control. Joining me now is Gabriel De Benedetti, international correspondent for New York Magazine and the author of this week's cover story. Gabe, thank you for being here. I found it fascinating and intriguing. One of the first things that I think it bears mentioning is, um, according to your sources, no one's really paying attention yet. Can you talk a little bit more about what you heard as you reported out the story? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, one of the central dynamics here is that when you look at polling numbers like the ones that you were just talking about, but also a lot of the ones that have been coming in for the last few weeks in particular, they've painted a pretty dire picture for the president. His approval rating is pretty low. And a lot of the head to heads, you know, with with Donald Trump in a lot of the battleground states, the numbers look really bad for Biden. And that's led to a lot of hand wringing, uh, you know, all across the Democratic Party, lots of people demanding, well, what's the plan here? You know, I talked to a lot of people people within the White House, within the campaign headquarters. And a point that they made time and time again was, we have a year until the election, basically 11 months. And right now, most real voters, in fact, the vast majority simply aren't paying attention. And why that's important is they're not conceptualizing this as a clear choice between Biden and Trump, which is almost certainly what it's going to be. You know, one person who I talked to quite frequently for this for this story pointed out to me that they had seen one poll that showed that only one fifth of voters, again, according to this internal research, uh, even thought that Trump would win the nomination of the Republican Party. And and that's, you know, in a Republican primary that he's leading by a huge margin. So the central article of faith for a lot of people around Biden is the numbers that we're looking at right now on the national level and in the battleground states aren't really indicative of what it's going to look like in a few months, let alone in a year, because most voters just aren't conceptualizing this as a real rematch, let alone the, the idea that, oh, my goodness, we might get Trump once again. Yeah, Jim Medicina says to you, the average swing voter thinks about politics for four minutes a week and they're not waking up for another 12 months. I mean, oh, to be a swing swing voter, I guess. Um, the other thing is you talk about the sort of resources that the Biden team is allocated to fighting the battle ahead. And I wonder if you can talk in a bit more detail about the way in which they're using outside Democratic organizations like the DNC to house some of their sort of best and brightest, if you will. Totally. Yeah, it's a great question because it's a little bit underappreciated just how much they've been using the DNC. And by they, I mean the Biden operation for a really long time now, you know, even before Biden became president when he was running in 2020, some of his top aides sat down and said, what is this all going to turn into once he becomes president, if he does win and if he runs for reelection? So starting then, you know, even before the transition into the presidency back in 2020, they started putting money and resources into the DNC and making plans for what this reelection might look like. So during the midterm time period, you had Democrats led by the White House, Biden's White House, deploying resources in a lot of the swing states and building up their data operations, digital operations in an attempt to try and be ready for this reelect. You know, one of the deputy campaign managers said to me earlier this this year, he said, while the Republicans are going through their messy primary, while everyone's focusing on other things, it's really important. This is this is the time that we are building up and really relying on, you know, their allies like the DNC to be able to fight the fight once it becomes a one on one race next year. You know, to give you an example, there's one guy who was running the digital operation of the Biden Biden campaign in 2020. He left that campaign after it was over to go work in the White House. He then left the White House again uh, just a few months ago to go work on this campaign. Now he's the deputy campaign manager. And when he walked into this job, he had 55 staffers waiting for him. They had been sitting at the DNC building the digital and data operation for the last three years.
That's not nothing. 55 staffers, three-year program already in, in progress before Biden has even really begun his reelection campaign in earnest. Um, Gabe, what is the Biden campaign worried about in terms of kind of outside X factors? I would ask no labels yeah. and their effort or third-party candidates. I know Cornell West is mentioned in the article. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, there's a lot of potential for chaos with a lot of these third party candidates. That's definitely a major point of concern. But another one is just a more fundamental one, which is that they don't really know what the battleground is going to look like in a year. You know, often people said to me to make the point, well, things will get better. You know, at this point in 2019, we didn't know what COVID was and Trump hadn't been impeached yet. And that's true. But these things can break both ways. And, and as of right now, they do have pretty big problems where there are a lot of Democrats, including young voters, who are either looking at these third party candidates or are just not happy with Biden and might sit this out. So, you know, a lot of this has to do with outside factors like, for example, uh, the war in the Middle East. But it also has to do with the perception of the economy, which, you know, a lot of people around Biden believe is going to get better over the course of the next year. But right now, simply it's true that their message is not breaking through, that Biden's message that the economy is improving and people are getting more money in their wallets, that hasn't really broken through. And that's something that there's not an obvious answer for right now. They're hoping to figure that out. Well, it is a great, fascinating read, and I will say reassuring to some people who may be hand-wringing at this moment in time. Gabe DiBenedetti, thank you again for your time and your writing. That is our show for this evening.